Well, you know that foreshadowing, foreshadowing is a literary device that storytellers use to kind of uh, show you in advance uh, what is going to happen in a, in a story. Little hints, uh, little, little things planted here and there in the story. Uh, so uh, Molly and I were watching a movie the other night uh, called uh, Enola Holmes. I don't know if you know this movie. Uh, he, she is the fictional younger sister of uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, and she was investigating a crime. And as the plot is developing, uh, there are little hints, little clues planted here and there uh, that she didn't realize were important at the time, and you as the audience, you don't realize that it's important at the time. But later, it comes back, uh, and, and you find out that, that these clues were very important to, to the solving uh, of the crime. And in the movie, uh, the filmmaker used flashbacks. Uh, they showed a clue earlier, then they went flash back to it, reminded you of that clue, trying to uh, help you understand uh, the, the solving of the mystery by using those clues. And I mention this to you because in some ways, the Old Testament is just one big foreshadowing of what is to come in the New Testament, the coming of Jesus Christ. He's a mystery in the Old Testament. Uh, he's hinted at repeatedly, but he's not clearly revealed. You know, you have a prophecy here, you have a promise there, uh, but it's not until the New Testament that you can really uh, go back to the Old Testament and put together the hints and the clues uh, that God gave us uh, and show how clearly they all pointed to Jesus. And so this year, uh, as I said, our sermon series is about the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, and pre-incarnate means before he took on flesh, before he took on flesh. And so, as I said, last week we looked at the pre-eternal Christ, uh, the, I'm sorry, the pre-existent Christ, the eternal Christ, and we tied that to the message of hope, uh, the first week of Advent. Uh, so Jesus, his, his uh, eternality gives us hope because Jesus was God and was there in the beginning with God, creating all things, uh, planning the creation of the world and planning to die for our sins before we were even born. And we also talked about Jesus appearing as the angel of the Lord uh, to people uh, in the Old Testament before he was born, giving those people help, giving those people hope, uh, warning those people when necessary, disciplining those people when necessary, all for their good. And we talked about how the eternal, uh, the, the pre-existent Christ gives us hope. And so we said that, that if we could say that, that Jesus Christ in uh, his pre-incarnate state uh, would visit the people, uh, speak to the people, give them hope, uh, then surely we can comprehend that Jesus will come and give us hope in our hour of need. And so now we're in the second week of Advent. The theme is peace. And we're talking in this week about how Jesus is predicted in prophecy and how his predictions in prophecy and how he is depicted uh, and being foreshadowed in the Old Testament gives us peace. Uh, so we're going to talk about those things today. But before we do that, let's just talk about this, this word, incarnation. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, well, it comes from this Latin word, incarnatus, which means to make flesh. And it's found in the Latin Vulgate version of John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, the Latin Vulgate was the Bible that was used throughout the Middle Ages. So this term, incarnatus, incarnation, it stuck. It became part of our vernacular. And so that's why we call it the incarnation. And so we have these clues in the Old Testament about Jesus' incarnation, predictions, foreshadowings, 
uh, that when you read the Old Testament, you know, they seem kind of dark, they seem kind of murky, we just don't quite understand exactly what is going on, uh, but they're seen so much more clearly in the light of New Testament revelation. And so these clues point to Jesus' incarnation. And so we'll talk about them today. Uh, and so we're going to talk first about prophecy. Christ predicted in the Old Testament, and we always start with Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, well, uh, God brought judgment first on Adam and Eve, and then on the serpent, and then on all creation. And speaking to the serpent, God said this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And here we have just three chapters into the Bible, God's first promise that there would be a redeemer from this sin that Adam and Eve had committed and brought this curse onto the world. And it's so interesting that this promise comes right after uh, Adam and Eve had committed this sin uh, and right in the middle of God pronouncing judgment on Adam, Eve, the serpent, and creation. And so God says, I will send a redeemer I will send this Redeemer to you. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we have this. And of course, you know, Adam and Eve could not understand what a full Redeemer, what a Redeemer meant to them or the full uh, measure of what that meant. But now in light of the New Testament that we have, it becomes so much more clear to us, doesn't it? We know who this Redeemer is. He is Jesus Christ. And now because of this Redeemer who has come, uh, we know that the battle is won. The outcome has already been decided. There is nothing left to happen except for Jesus to come and actually do the work that we know he's going to do because the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, uh, means Satan's defeat. He is defeated. And so what this tells us is that uh, Satan did uh, bruise Jesus' heel on the cross. He bruised his heel, and that wound seemed fatal at the time. But Jesus rose from the dead, uh, and by rising from the dead, that is the defeat of Satan. He will crush Satan's head. Uh, he will usher in a new kingdom. And if not for this one verse, just tucked into the middle of all these judgments in the middle of Genesis 3, uh, humanity would have no hope. We would have no hope at all. But because of God's promise in Genesis 3.15, and then all the promises that follow in the Old Testament, uh, we know that Jesus wins. We know that he wins, and he will deliver humanity from the, uh, deliver humanity from the curse that he pronounced on us. Uh, so that's Genesis 3.15. Another prediction, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. You know, if you read Isaiah chapter 9, the first five verses uh, speak of a future time when Israel, which is in this uh, dark time, a time of gloom uh, and, and just general darkness pervaded Israel. Uh, but God promises in those first five verses that, that this darkness, this gloom uh, that, that hung over Israel would be a thing of the past. And then in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah gives us a little more clarity about how exactly God is going to bring uh, the end of gloom and darkness. It will be through a redeemer whom God will send. And here's what 9, 6, and 7 say. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
Well, I don't know about you, but every time I read uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, uh, Handel's Messiah is playing in my head, right? Wonderful counselor. You, just, you, can't, you can't not hear it. Uh, it's just such a wonderful piece of music. Uh, you know, th- this passage really deserves at least a full sermon in and of itself. Uh, but for now, uh, let's just notice uh, that, that God promised to send a person send a son, right? A son. So a little more clarity now uh, to the promise. The passage makes more sense to us now than it would have to Isaiah, of course, because we have the light of the New Testament. Uh, And even if Isaiah understood the coming of a person, he would would not have understood a first coming followed by a second coming. That revelation happens later on uh, in the Bible. Uh, But this uh, redeemer was going to achieve something for God's people. That much probably Isaiah knew. And now that we have the New Testament, we know that Jesus came the first time at the incarnation uh, to announce the coming of the kingdom, that he's coming again uh, in judgment to bring his kingdom uh, and to bring peace uh, to those who have believed. And so he will fulfill the rest of the Old Testament prophecy when he comes a second time. Now, Isaiah doesn't identify this son by name. Uh, we, We don't know the name of his son just from Isaiah, but we do learn a lot about this future Redeemer. He would be born a child, right? And so that is an interesting thing to be said about him. And Jesus, of course, fulfilled that prophecy when he was born to the Virgin Mary. And he will rule over God's people politically as king in a new earthly kingdom. That's going to be future. That will happen at his second coming. He will have four names that describe his incredible nature and character. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, What amazing titles, right? Isaiah probably knew something about this person who would come, uh, that he's more than a man uh, just by these titles. Who else could be called uh, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God? Uh, Had to be something in Isaiah's mind to be contemplating who this Redeemer would be. We learned that this Redeemer will sit on David's throne. This is a reiteration of the promise that God made to, da- uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7, that one of your descendants will always sit on the throne forever. And that will also happen when Jesus comes again. And then also that this, all of this will be accomplished by the zeal of the Lord. Isn't that something? The zeal of the Lord means that it is God in his love and his grace and his mercy who uh, has, has already knows the beginning from the end. He is the one who will bring all of this to pass. Now, Isaiah couldn't have understood all that this prophecy meant or of the two second comings, as I said. But since we have the New Testament, we can understand the Old Testament better and what it meant. And we can identify this promised redeemer. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And it's the zeal of the Lord that brings all this to pass. Nothing having to do with us at all. It's the grace of the Lord and Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' coming sets all of this in motion. And the fact that Jesus will come again to complete all that he has promised ought to bring us this sense of peace that we look for at Christmas. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So Isaiah prophesies that this son, who he talks about in chapter 9, in chapter 7 says that he will be born of a virgin. And of course, the virgin birth is absolutely foundational to Christianity. We have to have a virgin birth in order to have Christianity because the only way that Jesus could be born without a sin nature is if he were conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by sinful men. 
And in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces that this child uh, would be born, that, that she would conceive in her womb and give birth to a son who would be called Great, Son of the Most High. And that this son would be given the throne of David, his father, and so reign over the descendants of Jacob forever and ever. Now, Mary, of course, has a lot of questions, as you can imagine, right? I am a virgin. How can this possibly happen? She didn't understand the logistics, the mechanics of how this all would come to pass. But Gabriel assured her this would happen by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He would overshadow Mary and make the impossible possible. And the one born to her would be called Son of God. And the angel Gabriel says to Mary, uh, you think that's something, I'll tell you something else. You have a relative, her name is Elizabeth. She is an old woman, she's past the age of childbearing and she is barren yet pregnant in her sixth month. And then the angel Gabriel says, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. The God who created the universe, the God who created the laws that govern the universe can interrupt those laws. He can do anything he wants, anytime he wants. This is his universe. He is sovereign over it. And though the normal way of procreation is through a union of male and female, God can cause a virgin to become pregnant if that's what he wants to do. God can do anything that is in his will. And what could give us more peace than knowing that an all-powerful God uh, can make a virgin pregnant? If he can do that, well, what can't he do? And if the, the humility of Jesus Christ, uh, King of kings and Lord of lords, he's called in the Revelation, uh, eternal God would become an embryo uh, in a woman's womb, what won't he do for us? What won't Jesus Christ do for us? That should give us tremendous peace this Christmas. And finally, uh, Micah 5.2. Uh, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me uh, to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So this prophecy is about Jesus' birth. Now, scholars say that Jesus fulfilled something like 300 prophecies during his lifetime. Uh, and critics argue that, well, you know, it's easy to fulfill prophecy when you know what it is. You just, you know, know the prophecy and then you go about trying to fulfill it. And they say that that's what Jesus did. Well, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 is not a prophecy that any ordinary man could fulfill by knowing the prophecy and going about to fulfill it because it has to do with the place of his birth. And, and who can choose where somebody is going to be born unless he is God? Now, I was born in Queens, New York. If I had my druthers, I would have been born someplace beautiful, like, you know, Bermuda or Jamaica or someplace like that. But I was born in Queens, New York. That wasn't up to me. That was up to my parents, right? And so, but Jesus' birth, it was up to him. He was the one who got to decide where he would be born. And he chose to be born in Bethlehem. Luke 2 tells us that uh, the emperor at the time, Caesar Augustus, ordered a census and that everybody had to go back to their hometown in order to be counted. Well, Joseph and Mary, they were living in Nazareth at the time, but Joseph is from Bethlehem. So he's got this, this wife who's nine months pregnant, and so they have to trek 70 miles south from Nazareth back down to Bethlehem in order to be counted. And so why did this happen? Well, it was because God deemed that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, and God's scripture will be fulfilled. 
Now, Micah prophesied this 600 plus years before Jesus' birth. How could he possibly get that right? Well, it's because God is the author of Scripture, and God determines the outcome of all events. And so Jesus' birth, his fulfillment about being born in Bethlehem, as Micah prophesied, ought to give us peace because it shows God's absolute sovereignty over all things. He can predict and fulfill the future perfectly because he lives outside of time. And so he sees the end from the beginning. Uh, To God, it's all happened already. It's already been written. He sees past, present, and future. To us, when we think prophecy, we think about seeing something that happened in the future. And to us, it is future because we live in sequential time. But God doesn't live in sequential time. To him, the end is as done as the beginning is done. And so he can ordain all of these things uh, that have already happened uh, in his mind, even though they haven't happened yet in our sequential time. So, So when God gave Micah this prophecy, he told Micah to write what had already happened in God's economy. And why should that give us peace? Because God has already determined all that will happen. And God is good. And so you don't have to worry about what you don't know is coming because God already knows what's coming. You can't control anything, but God is in control of everything. And since we know that God is good and he loves us, we can trust him. You know, worrying is is just looking into a future without God in it, right? We're worried because we don't know what's going to happen and we don't trust that God is in control of it. But when we look forward to the future with God in control, well, then everything becomes easier. We've trusted him with our salvation, right? So why wouldn't we trust him with our tomorrow and the next tomorrow and the next tomorrow? Let's, let's have that thought give us peace. All right, so I could go on and on with Old Testament prophecies, uh, but I'm sure you all want to have lunch at some point. So we'll move on to the second part of the sermon, which is to talk about Old Testament typology. Old Testament typology is about not Christ predicted, but depicted uh, through foreshadowing of people and events. So let me explain this a little bit. Um, Typology is a kind of symbolism uh, where a person or an event in the Old Testament corresponds to or represents something about Jesus or something that happens in Jesus's life. So when we say, for example, that someone in the Old Testament is a type of Christ, What we're saying is that that person has a quality or a characteristic or something happened to that person that Christ will later uh, somehow more uh, more fully fulfill uh, when he comes uh, in his lifetime. And when we say that an event uh, typifies or is typical of Christ, that means that the event uh, somehow corresponds to something that Christ did or something that Christ's life symbolizes uh, when he came. And so there are lots and lots of these typologies, and we could spend months in a sermon series on this, but what we're going to do today is just pick uh, two people uh, who typify Christ and then two events uh, that typify Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, So the people, we'll start with Moses. We'll start with Moses. Deuteronomy uh, is the account uh, of Moses giving the law uh, to the second generation of people, uh, Israelites, uh, the ones who were going to enter into the promised land. Remember, the first generation had all died off because of their unfaithfulness. Moses is preaching to them uh, before they cross over the Jordan River uh, to go into the promised land. Uh, and so part of his instruction to Israel was about a coming prophet. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. 
Well, for the most part, Israel didn't listen to Moses, right? The people really gave Moses a hard time, I would say, to put it lightly. And that's why they all waited and they died in the wilderness. And the next generation was the generation that got to enter the promised land. And the Israelites had many prophets after Moses and they didn't listen to them either. And that's why Israel was conquered and exiled by Assyria and by Babylon and by others after those days. But none of those prophets was the prophet uh, that God promised that through Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And so we know that, that the New Testament talks about how, uh, how Jesus is the prophet, but just notice the parallels between Moses and Jesus. They're really striking. Remember that Moses was nearly killed as an infant because of the uh, decree of Pharaoh that all Hebrew male uh, children uh, newly born uh, had to be killed by their parents. So we have that. And then Herod tried to kill Jesus, right? When the wise men came and said, a star has risen and the Savior is born, Herod tried to kill Jesus. Uh, and so you have that parallel. Both were saviors and deliverers, right? Jesus obviously delivers his people, but Moses delivered his people from the hand of Pharaoh, right? Leading the Exodus. Both were rejected by their people. Moses had to deal with tons of rejection from his people, and obviously Jesus did too. That's why he was crucified. And Moses died before he entered into the promised land. He never got to enter the promised land. Jesus died so we could enter the promised land, uh, heaven itself, by faith uh, in Jesus Christ. And the people never did listen to Moses, but one day every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaim him king. So that's Moses. Uh, Isaac, we talked about Isaac last week. Remember uh, how Abraham was about to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice uh, because God told him to. And at the last second, the angel of the Lord, remember, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, uh, commanded Abraham to stop, uh, spared Isaac, and provided another sacrifice in his place. And the parallels between uh, uh, Isaac and Jesus Christ are obvious, right? Both were going to be offered as a sacrifice. Uh, Isaac was spared by the angel of the Lord, uh, but Jesus actually went to the cross, went to death, uh, because uh, he had to do that in order to redeem us. God did not spare Jesus. But uh, considering some of the other parallels, you know, Isaac and Jesus were both miraculous births, right? Isaac is born, uh, the child of the promise, to a 90-year-old woman who was barren her entire life. Uh, and Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. So you have two miraculous births. Uh, both were answers to long-awaited promises, right? Uh, Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled, and the people had been waiting for centuries for the birth of their Messiah, Jesus. Both were called only begotten. If you read Hebrews 11:17, 17, uh, Isaac is called only begotten, and obviously Jesus in John 3:16 is called the only begotten son. Uh, and one more foreshadowing for, from Isaac's life that happens when Abraham goes, uh, sends Eleazar to try and find a bride for Isaac. He goes away to a faraway land seeking the perfect woman, uh, finds Rebekah uh, in this faraway land up in Macedonia. Well, that portrays God the Father ascending the Holy Spirit to heaven to secure a bride for Jesus Christ. And who is that bride? It's you and me. It's the church. And that is the symbolism there. Uh, Isaac's entire life foreshadows the life of Christ. But we can only see that through the revelation, the future revelation that God provided in the New Testament. And there are many other examples of, of people who are types of Christ. But let's talk about a couple of events that are types of Christ. Uh, first, the clothing of Adam and Eve. The clothing of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, Genesis 3-7 says that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. 
Uh, and God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, looking to speak to them, but, but they hid from them. Where are you, Adam, God says. I, I was naked and I hid. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? I did. She made me do it. And then Eve said, he made me do it. The serpent made me do it, right? And in the midst of all this, God starts pronouncing judgments on the people. And as I said earlier, gives Genesis 3.15 the promise of a redeemer. Uh, Adam and Eve made loincloths for themselves out of fig leaves. And, And what does God do? He takes animal skin and he clothes them. It's the last thing he does before he sends them out of the Garden of Eden. Now, where does God get these animal skins from? He's got to kill an animal to do it, doesn't he? He's got to kill an animal. And so what do we see? After the very first sin, we see God shedding blood, killing an animal, covering Adam and Eve's sin with the skin of that animal. The author of Hebrews uh, in 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so God's killing of this animal, shedding its blood, covers the sin of Adam and Eve. And so we you and I, we have no ability to cover our own selves, our own nakedness, our own shame, our own sin, unless we are clothed with Jesus Christ. God shed his blood so that you and I could be healed uh, from our own sin. So that's the clothing of Adam and Eve. And then probably the most obvious one is Passover, right? Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, Pharaoh ignored nine plagues that God sent. Moses continued to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh would promise to do it, then he would renege on the promise, and God would send another plague. And finally, the tenth plague, God promises to send the angel of death uh, to visit the firstborn of every child in Egypt. And he gave the Israelites one way, and one way only, to avoid being visited by the angel of death. You take a perfect one-year-old lamb, you sacrifice that lamb, and you paint your doorposts with the blood of that lamb, and the angel of death will pass over your house. He will not visit your house. Well, the lamb that was sacrificed was clearly a type of Christ, the blood of that lamb, offering salvation to everyone in that home. In the same way, God gave us only one way of salvation. It is by trusting in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed on the cross for our sin, who died in our place, taking the penalty and the punishment that we deserve. And the only way we can be saved is to be covered by Jesus Christ's blood. And that is the typology between the Passover and uh, uh, Jesus Christ. And so I hope you can see in this God's sovereignty, God's grace, uh, through progressive revelation, how God continues to provide more and more information, giving you little hints, little clues along the way uh, about the coming of Jesus. And God intended these hints, these clues, these little breadcrumbs for you and I to see, to give us hope, to give us peace. It's as though God is saying, look, you don't have to worry. I got you. I got this covered. You don't have to be afraid. God continues to promise his people a redeemer. And we know now that he is Jesus, embedded in the Old Testament, dark and murky, but revealed clear in shining light to us uh, in the New Testament as the promised Prince of Peace. And how blessed we are, you and I, to have all of God's revelation in the New Testament. And you know, God's program is not done yet. There is so much more yet to be fulfilled. There is a second coming that we're all eagerly awaiting, even though we celebrate the first coming on Christmas Day. And while we wait, there is so much 
that threatens our peace, both physically and spiritually, right? There's so much out there that threatens our peace. The world has gone crazy. And I don't know about you, but I want to leave here today with peace, the peace that God promises. So let's close by thinking about why this predicted peace, uh, predicted coming of of Jesus Christ uh, gives us peace. And so we'll start by talking about how God's promises can be trusted. God's promises and his word can be trusted. As I said, the Old Testament is is really a long foreshadowing of the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of these prophecies uh, that, that Jesus did while he lived, that he's already fulfilled, prove that God is in control of the world, that nothing happens outside of his express will. And so the timing of every event is in God's hands. God fulfilled uh, the promise of his first coming. So why would we doubt that he will fulfill the promise of his second coming? The best predictor of future performance is past performance, and God's batting a thousand, so we don't have anything to worry about. And if God has this level of control over the universe, why would we let the world disturb our peace? There's so much going on in the world that could disturb our peace, but let's look past all that. Let's look to God, who is our peace. He can, we can trust all of his promises because the incarnation happened. We know everything else God promised will happen as well. And so just think about some of these promises that God makes to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. How's that for a promise of God? You're never alone. God will never leave you or forsake you. I am the resurrection and the life. Even though a man dies, though he believes in me, he will live forever. We don't have to fear death. We're just going to cross over and be with God forever and ever. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Has the world got you down? Christ gives you rest. He is your peace. Behold, I am coming soon. I don't know what soon means. 2,000 years doesn't seem like soon to me, but soon means next. It's the next thing that's going to happen. He's coming again. We can trust that. We can trust God's promises. And the second thing, why Jesus' promises, of, why Jesus' incarnation gives us peace is that Jesus himself is our peace. I've told you before that my favorite Christmas carol is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I love the line in the first verse, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. I mean, that is succinct, beautifully said, uh, and says it all, really. God and sinners reconciled. There is tremendous peace in knowing that Jesus has reconciled us to God. And since God knows everything and plans everything, we have nothing to fear. Jesus said to his apostles on the night uh, of his uh, coming death, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. What is this promised peace? Well, this promised peace is a stillness. It's a calmness of heart, a calmness of spirit, knowing that Jesus controls everything, that he's gonna use everything for good. And Jesus offers this peace to each and every one of us. Do you want this peace? I spent the first 40 or so years of my life living without this kind of peace, seeking for peace in all various kinds of places until I found it in Jesus Christ. If you lack peace, there could be several reasons why. And the first one is if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you have not received him as your Lord and Savior, you will not have this peace. You do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You'll never have the peace that God offers. And if that's you today, I do have some bad news. 
God's wrath remains on you. You are not forgiven of your sins. But I also have good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good news. Jesus died for your sin. He rose from the dead. He paid your penalty. And all you need to do is to receive him as Lord and Savior. And your sins are covered. So receive Jesus and have the peace that God promises. Now, I assume that most of you have already made that confession, that you have uh, peace with God positionally, uh, but maybe you don't feel that peace with God for some reason. Well, there are several reasons why that might be as well. It may be because you're not growing as a Christian. If you're not growing as a Christian, maybe it's because you haven't made Jesus a priority in your life. Yes, you're saved, but you kind of put him on the back burner. Uh, And to have peace with God, you need to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're too influenced by the world. You look at all the stuff that's happening on a horizontal level, but you forget to look up. You forget to look vertically and say, Jesus Christ, you are my peace no matter what's going on in the world. I trust you that you're going to make everything okay. Maybe you're stuck in some sin struggle. You have the choice between being committed to Jesus or some sin, and you choose the sin. You need to stop doing that. You need to trust Jesus that he can help you get out of that sin. Maybe you really haven't surrendered your life to him. You believe in Jesus, uh, but you just don't want to live for him. You, you prefer to live for your own desires and your own cravings. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're not relying on Jesus as the anchor of your soul. You're, you're floating around. You're adrift because you've forgotten that Jesus has promised to be the anchor of your soul. Maybe you believe that these promises are not for you, that they're for somebody else, that they don't apply to you for some reason. Well, if any of these statements apply to you, well, then you may need to recommit your life to Christ. You may need to get down on your knees and and claim the peace that God offers you. You've already trusted him as Savior. Now obey his commands and trust that he is who he says he is and that you can trust his promises. I want to close with the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I want you to go home and just ponder these lyrics. You know, we sing this song in church, you know, four four times a year, probably at Advent. But have you ever really thought about the words to this verse? Put them on your fridge, put them on your bathroom mirror. Read these verses verses with me. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Here's the best part. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Think about what that means. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much, and we thank you so much for the sending of Jesus Christ. We celebrate his miraculous birth this season but we never separate the birth of Christ from the death of Christ. Jesus was born to die for our sins, Lord, and we love him for that. We thank him for that. And Lord, we give you all honor and glory. And Lord, uh, this Christmas season, I just pray that we would keep these words, hark the herald angels sing, and other Christmas songs and the Christmas story itself in our minds as we consider the wonder of the birth of Jesus and all that it means for us. May it give us peace today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.